this is Waris Hussain, and you're listening to Gallifrey Public Radio. Yeah. Gallifrey Public Radio, a weekly podcast dedicated to positive enjoyment of Doctor Who. We travel through classic and new episodes, explore the extended universe, and play a few games from time to time. We do discuss news, content that has been officially released, and the occasional interesting rumor, but we'll warn you before anything considered spoilers comes up. Welcome to episode 489 of Gallifrey Public Radio, where you get a sonic device, and you get a sonic device, and you get a sonic device. I'm Julie. I'm Kier. I'm Haley. And I'm Jay. This week, the Bannerman Road Gang gets two scoops of trouble th- uh, when Miss Wormwood returns with backup in Enemy of the Bane. Sarah Jane and the kids very quickly learn that the Bane were not dealt with completely back in season one. In fact, Mrs. Wormwood is now an outcast from her own species. She doesn't really have a path to redemption among her kind. She's more of an appetizer, I suppose. Uh, So she goes for the next best thing, universal domination. To help make that happen, she teams up with an unlikely ally who is in a similar pariah state, former Santaran Commander Cog, also recently defeated by the Sarah Jane team. So using Luke as the perfectly manufactured mechanism, the two of them instead uh, intend to lock an ancient alien tomb and re- take revenge on the planet Earth and well beyond. Get me my gun. No. I can't. I've been a disgrace to Santa. I've betrayed the Brotherhood of Warriors. Give me this chance of honor. And what more fun could there be than to destroy. With your deaths, the age of Wormwood shall begin! There haven't been many guests in the Sarah Jane team to begin with, so how epic was it to have a major appearance with Sir Alistair? Was the Brigadier just a nice tie-in for Major Kilburn's slimy reveal and a lovely classic acknowledgement? Or did it serve to hint at something more from Sarah Jane's past is kind of what I'm wondering. I'm sure this is kind of one of those yes ands. But as far as what it could hint at, it reminds me a lot of the fact that, uh, as we've seen even with our our close of of the most recent season, the companions that are still doing the work out there you know you can't you can't have your life touched by the doctor and not and not want to see that effort that betterment of everything around you continue in some capacity um, whether it's just within your family dynamic or whether it's you know on a, on a larger stage so the those little moments where they sort of implied that they've been checking in with one another uh, more often, this isn't just a social call. I'd be disappointed if it was kind of a thing. You know, it, it just just says, all right, yeah, they're, they're, they're both 
they're both on the action. Uh, I did love the fact that the Briggs uh, really quickly comes up with the excuse, oh, I'm, I'm working on my memoirs. I would like to read those memoirs, please. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I will advance order those copies. Yeah. I, I mean, I, it's, I do. It, it kind of establishes what we saw at the end of the last Doctor's story, which is that these companions have been keeping in touch. It's just we didn't get to see it. Yeah, and that was... Had it been any other companion, it might have felt a little shoehorned in. But because it was Sarah Jane, because we've seen her uh, interact with the brigadier and, you know, we know that there is a history there. Like, it makes sense that they would have kept in touch or at least that, you know, they would have been keeping tabs on each other. So it it really did feel like it served the story because short of calling the doctor, who else is Sarah Jane going to go to in a situation like this? Of course, she's going to contact the brig. So mm-hmm. I, I think that it really worked and it, it helped to kind of make this feel like it is an extension of doctor who proper instead of just like, Oh yeah, it's Sarah Jane. She was in that other show, but now it really does feel like another story in that universe. One of my favorite aspects of exactly what you're saying, Jay, is that we see him aged the doctor is always who they are. So you don't get that sense of time until our most recent episode with Doctor Who, but seeing the brigadier now and him still having a place and being active and having tricks up his sleeve with his cane shooting out and taking out the bane, those moments just tie it all together for me and place it as this is timeless, even more than just a doctor who can regenerate. And specifically with these two characters, Jay, you started to allude to this. This is something where they, even from their their point of introduction back in Robot, um, they respected one another at a professional level, uh, even before they got to know one another on a personal level or a or a uh, shared mortal peril kind of level. So, you know, the the understanding of her merits as a, an investigative reporter and obviously, you know, his his position of authority and and command within this military unit is is something that I think makes them in particular uh, resources that could rely on one another in the future. So, yeah, it definitely tracks. Um, something that that struck me, and I wanted to know uh, how it how it landed with all of you as well. I know this probably wasn't first viewing for for many of us, but if you can think back to first viewing when the reveal happened that uh, that Mrs. Wormwood was calling upon Cog at the close of part one, and that little cliffhanger reveal, how did how did that uh, what did that do for you as someone who was watching this spinoff series? coming from the the title show proper to have that kind of a of a link between baddies well for me first it was ooh potato (laughs) but then i really feel like that is a very doctor who feel of randomly bringing back enemies that are working together in those ways and such a classic easy to recognize you know there's going to be trouble going down and that somehow it's intergalactic and not just on Earth is really nice. Yeah, um, and it almost felt like Wormwood is getting pushed into a master level role against Sarah Jane because starting to recruit lower level henchmen and enemies to help her achieve her evil goals. And trying to appeal to her 
on a psychological level at times. Yeah. yeah well, in, especially in this story, seeming like the dark counterpart to Sarah Jane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and trying to convince a companion, aka Luke, to come with her, which is yeah. a very master thing to do. Try to turn everyone against the doctor for logical reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, unlimited rice pudding. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly, it took me a bit to figure out who Cog was. I just, I was like, okay, Santarin. One is just like every other one, which is kind of the point, but. <laughs> But it really wasn't until like later on when they were like full on the explanation. I'm like, oh, 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 that's the guy. He did the thing. So it it, it really was kind of lost on me, honestly. That was another pretty early episode in season one, wasn't it? Yeah. So yeah. that doesn't not make sense for you, Jay. But I think that's what makes their pairing up that much more intricate of a balance of adversaries because neither one actually trusts each other and they even say as much as an aside to you know one of the bannerman folk at, at, at some interval that you know i'm just i'm just using this one and then the other one says well i'm just using that one uh but also the fact that they are both uh they've both been bested at least once uh, and they are both outcasts as a result of their loss, as, as a result of their defeat. It's just a really, really interesting um, meeting of the minds that makes for this enemy of my enemy is my friend, but not really my friend because I'm going to stab them in the back or shove them down a portal hole as soon as I get an opportunity anyway. Well, they both thought they were better than the other one for different reasons. So right. you're a clone, you don't matter. You're a woman, you don't matter. It, all of these things... And then I also think it's interesting. They've had time. So the fact that we don't necessarily recognize them right off the bat or trying to pick back to season one, even for show time, real life for them, mm-hmm. there's been enough time that this could legit be a thing that happened. And I like that. I like seeing that sense of time make a difference and mean something that's plausible science fiction that is yes it has real potential <laughs> happens all the time <laughs> so i in thinking about this episode does the show itself ever feel like it's lacking stakes given that none of the characters are ever really in danger uh i'm thinking specifically of ronnie's mother in this story I think that's a valid observation, given that after all of the worry that Ronnie puts into rescuing her, they find her just standing alone in a warehouse. Um, There's, you know, she's not being detained. She's as if she was just being used as some sort of a tool to get the conversation started. You could have gotten Sarah Jane's attention uh, and engage her in conversation without having to tee up this sort of a pump fake risk scenario. And to that, they also don't keep an eye on her or monitor her or anything after that. She's just allowed to wander free again, which (laughs) from our perspective, sure, we know, hey, story has progressed and we don't need to worry about that anymore. But from them within the story, if you put yourself in their shoes, mom just got abducted and was mind controlled. And now they're just ah, totally fine. (laughs) Can we borrow your van? And then, can we borrow your van? Also, they had a complete stranger in their house from Unit who could have done the same thing because it's the same species, just new one new at that moment. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. And I also would 
put a little bit into the fact that I don't think Luke was ever really in jeopardy. You get that they were trying to say that and have that threat of Mrs. Wormwood taking him, trying to have him go into the sphere by himself, but or with her. You know they're not going to end a season without him there. Yeah. Well, even thinking of the scene with the fake unit agent having a gun pulled on the whole group, and were you ever really concerned in that moment? Like, that should be a, this is a high jeopardy situation. Um, but mm-hmm. I wasn't worried about anybody. I just kick tables at them. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's true. Have, have or, the or, yeah, yeah. teenager knock the gun out of his hands. It's fine. I don't know if we've gotten to the point in this show. You know how some shows the make an expectation that the viewer is maturing with the show the mm-hmm. longer it runs, right? And, and it starts with real low stakes at the beginning. And then once you start getting invested in the characters and you know that your audience is potentially a year to a year and a half or so older, you can start working heavier material in. We've always praised this show for taking chances, even in the early episodes, to hit on some hard topics, but they were emotional topics. And they were they were things about issues that really mattered to teens and tweens. The, they haven't yet gotten to the point where the, the, the I'm not necessarily going to say the death of a character, but even the, the serious the grave injury of a character is something that they're willing to cross that threshold because that then makes the whole show more worrisome. Mm. I'm trying to think what was said when we were listening in at the, at the panel at Galley, and one of the principal writers for the show was saying that we had to make sure that we tread the line between terror and horror. Mm-hmm. And does something like that cause you to start to drift from, ooh, I, we terrorized the kids, into we horrified the children? I, I don't know. Well, and honestly, I mean, that's that's something that we've we've dealt with in Who Proper as well. I mean, look at the entirety of, of Stephen Moffat's run, really. I mean, you, you have those moments where it's like, oh, the horrible thing that's going on happened to the companion. It's fine. It's reversible now. Like, it's it, it's almost become a trope at this point. So to have it in this show as well kind of feels like they're they're being faithful to the source material. Well, I'm thinking even if you did something like we saw with Dan's departure, where he recognizes that he was in danger, and because he was in danger, it changes his actions. If even somebody in-universe recognized the danger of what was happening. The issue, though, is if you have the parents of Ronnie or... Clyde. Clyde. Recognize that there is danger happening they just don't get to be involved anymore. So you can't really make it be something that the parents or guardians recognize. And even Sarah Jane, to some extent, she had that moment at at some point during season one where she realized, oh, this is dangerous. I shouldn't be bringing teens with me. (laughs) And then the next scene, she goes, hop in the car, let's go. So if you recognize that this is really not stuff that teens should be doing, you no longer have a show. So you have to keep the stakes somewhere safe enough that that age is still allowed to be there mm-hmm. in friendly ish yeah <laughs> <laughs> dangerous <laughs> so one of the things that that came up in the story that i really kind of wanted to to talk about was the 
uh, for lack of a better term, we'll call it Luke's mommy issues, where you've you have you have it leaning so heavily on Mrs. Wormwood being Luke's quote unquote mother after watching Sarah Jane raise him as her own son for two seasons. Like, do you think that there was too much emphasis put on that in this story or do you think that they should have addressed it head on and been like, hey, this is what we're alluding to kind of thing? I feel like it was a little bit encroaching on the whole, hey, you're adopted, I raised you, I made you topic. Mm -hmm. And I think that they recognize that from a writer's and cast perspective, something that Daniel had mentioned in telling a story about one of his most favorite moments was having all of the goo sprayed on him. (laughs) And he said it was, oh, it was that episode where we dealt with the Bane and some of the more abandonment type and those kinds of issues. So I don't think that it goes amiss the way that it was portrayed. I didn't have a problem with the, with the, the fact that they kept kind of hitting on it as they, as they did, because I think they were sort of putting a very unusual spin on the, uh, on on that sort of adoptive parent adopted child uh conversation um the the fact that that they they dialed in so tightly on it worked because of the fact that the nature of this villain's manipulation was aimed specifically on that weaponizing that aspect of the uh, of the of the dynamic uh, among Sarah Jane and, and Luke and, and all the and all the kids that under her care sort of as their war as her wards but the we got reminders on a regular basis that she was just you know she would do these moments where how many times did she put her hand on Luke's face and say something about the kind of join me thing and then within maybe half a page of the script, you realized that she was just manipulating the whole time. So it sort of, it pulled the legs out from under that being a a really, really um, serious or heartfelt plea to him. From Mrs. Wormwood. From Mrs. Wormwood specifically. So it just, it it kept it from being too uncomfortable for me as a viewer, but uh, your mileage may vary, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of the show has always been the relationship with between Sarah Jane and Luke. So it felt like this was just another opportunity to explore how much that relationship has grown. Um, I, I don't know that they gave Wormwood enough weight to really feel like there was ever a potential of that pulling him away. Um, but it did just reestablish he really is her son at this point. And there's really no question about that. Yeah. One of the things I've always really enjoyed about this show is the fact that they don't they don't rely too heavily on the happy family dynamic. Um, you know, there's a lot of shows where it's just like, hey, everything's you know, you're okay at home so that there's that safe space to return to after the adventure kind of thing. And and this show kind of they're like real life is not as as clean as that like things can happen you know the we had the episode with Clyde's dad where it just there's a whole mess of emotions that came along with that and here you have like the you know is someone your mother because they're biologically related to you or engineered you or whatever the case is or is it the person that actually takes the time to raise you and it's these are things that the the target audience 
may be struggling with in their own life and having the ability to shine a light on that and be like, look, it is okay to feel conflicted. It's okay to not know which way to go. You know, there's the, one of the things that frustrated me the most was watching Luke go back and forth when it's obvious, like you're not supposed to listen to her. She's obviously playing you, but for the target audience, this may be something that they actually have to encounter. Mm-hmm. Having them be able to to see that could really be important. Yeah, letting it be an okay thing to feel and having that internal conflict and seeing somebody dealing with it on a grand scale like that, but it's it's acceptable to have those feelings. The one moment that I liked the most is where he sort of agreed and played into it, but then immediately did one of those pump fakes and started running. <laughs> That's the best manipulation you got right there. Yeah. Yeah. Two can play. <laughs> yeah. He, his, his humanity is just growing so much. <laughs> so it's, it's another example of this show being able to use a lot of the underpinnings and mechanisms of the, of the more mature property, I guess, if, if you want to call it that, but doing so with a keen awareness of audience and demographic at every turn and knowing that, okay, while we're not going to, we're not going to turn this up to 11 on the creepy crawly factor. And when we blow our monsters up, they're not going to be entrails. It's going to be vanilla pudding or something of that sort. But yes, I know. Lovely, lovely. Uh, But by the same token, it may, I, I would, I would say pound for pound, this show works uh, emotional topics harder than so, its predecessor. So would we say that that's where our stakes are risen? Because Luke could have said, logically, yes, you were my creator. I will go with you. I'm here to help you serve your mission. And she was playing it very realistic in those moments where she was being fake honest with him, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like to come with me. Or even so far as saying, I'll go along with you uh, and then I'll work on a way to get back. I'll go. I'll go along with you to to satisfy this, so that the people that I care about aren't at risk. And then I will work on my own way of getting out of this mess. Yeah. I mean, all in all, I feel like this was a it was a solid entry for the series. It it had that weight that you kind of would expect from a season finale, and it, it's really kind of set things up moving forward. And I'm it, I. I know I say this pretty much every time, but like I'm, I'm excited about the next one. I want to see where it goes now. Yeah. Did did the previous? I'm trying to think back now to the previous, uh, the the season one closing story. Did it leave a little breadcrumb of what to expect? Was that, was that where uh, right where right towards the end, Sarah Jane mentioned something about oh, there, you know, when I was a baby, uh, like the like the hint about her parents kind of thing. Was that how we ended? No, season one? because that wasn't season one or season two's premiere. Okay. The baby one. So maybe they didn't do, I'm trying to remember whether or not they did any sort of a, uh, a dot, dot, dot at the end of season one. I feel not. like two or three times every season you get the, them all standing and close out shot of the stars. So yeah. th- this was definitely the end of that. Yeah. Because you had that moment of, here we are. <laughs> I, we we so stand I, straight to look out the window. <laughs> I don't clearly remember what the delineation was between season one and season two, um, unless I can remember that Ronnie is in it or not. Uh, but wasn't it season one that had like the flashback to 
Sarah Jane's childhood with the girl who replaced her like Sarah Jane died instead of her. The trickster premiere episode, the you know, first appearance of the trickster. I don't, was I don't that know season if that one? one closed it. Uh, look at us being well-researched <laughs> and well-read. We're experts. Like we, we do a podcast about this. A this. Um, well, that's, I mean, that's when I remember that I think that was early on that they established that Sarah Jane was an orphan. And I think that was mm-hmm. Sarah one or season one, which clearly would have been a breadcrumb for the story we get in season two, where we go back and see what happened to her parents. Right. I just, it almost makes me feel like, because this is a spinoff series, like they never want to make an assumption that they're going to get picked up for another, you know, you could walk away from this show right here. But would you ever? Well, of course not. <laughs> but it doesn't... It, it, I wish class had made that assumption. Yeah. We wish a lot of things about <laughs> class. But, but do you know what I mean? It's it's a it's a sort of a... It leaves you with a feel-good at the end rather than a, oh, no. And then th- th- that may not get resolved. Yeah. So... I appreciate when we do not have a cliffhanger ending that is may not be resolved. I then wonder about those shows for the rest of my life. Yeah. It's unfair treatment of fans. It's not necessarily such a great mechanism to... To make an assumption that oh well if we don't if we don't do this then the audience won't come back well then that you're not giving yourself enough credit for the quality of the series that you just handed somebody yeah. so uh, give them a little bit of a resolution make them feel good about it and then they'll come back when you're in for your next season the only cliffhangers I like are when I'm binge watching much further in the future and you know that you've still got more and to I come. know I still have more <laughs> seasons left no cliffhangers no spoilers that's my just, just that is my tagline. in my bubble. <laughs> this is my this is my tagline. This is my life. No surprises, please. The Julie Hansen story. <laughs> I found my new tattoo. <laughs> no cliffhangers. No spoilers. Don't ever give me up. Don't ever let me down. <laughs> <laughs> When you have a property that is now back for uh, as many years as it is now, you know, we're, we're coming on, closing in on 20 years of, of returned Doctor Who, you've got modern showrunners that are now previous showrunners. And you get a longer list of those individuals that you can refer to as previous showrunners. And then, of course, when they get the media in front of them, they love to ask questions like, would you ever write for Doctor Who again? Yep. <sighs> Is what they said? Well, no, not. For the longest time, you would think, you know, if, if they say, you know what? No, you know, it, it's time to, it's time. I passed the baton. I've told my, my stories have been told. And now it's time to give the reins to somebody else so that they can tell their tale. And you would accept that and say, you know what? That's, that, kudos to you. That's a, that's a, that's a valiant way to, to, to step out of the limelight. And then R2D comes back in and says, nah, I want the gig again. Ha, la, la, which is fine. It was great. We're all really excited about that. But then people start pointing at other people who just sat in that chair and says, yeah, what now what are you going to do? You going to write another story? You, you going to come back and do something? And I remember, it was, I think it was like June of last year, June of 22 or so, there was something through the news cycle where somebody had, had cornered Stephen Moffat and they asked him about would he ever write for the show again? And he said emphatically not. 
and it was that it was that explanation again. He goes, "I understand what Russell's doing." I think it was right around the time that Russell had been revealed that he was going to be coming back to take the helm, and said, "I, I absolutely respect that. I think it's going to be amazing for the for the property and for everything else and the stories being told." But I don't want to be a part of that. I have other irons in the fire, and I've again I've told my story. The mirror doesn't think so. A source. My brother said. <laughs> This rippled through the news cycle for like a, about like three days. And, you know, when it goes in the mirror and then somebody quotes the mirror and then somebody else quotes somebody else quoting the mirror and then the rumor mill just starts to grind and grind. It's as if it reflects all over. Yeah, like a mirror. <laughs> Thankfully, it's dissipating. I think somebody has kind of called hogwash. But if you go back, do, you, do yourself a disservice. Read the whole stupid article. Um, art, big air quotes on article. It's if this is a made-up source, it is a very, very long quote from a made-up source. It's like four paragraphs of potentially pulled from whole cloth gobbledygook. But would we want to see him return? I would say it has not been that long at this point since he he was the showrunner and had a chance to tell his stories. But I would also say that saying he's never going to return. The show could be going on for who knows how much longer. So I I can't imagine he'll never return. I think at some point in the future, he'll have a story again that he wants to tell. But I don't know that that's any time in the near future. I mean, as a writer, though, if you're handed a show with an opportunity to put something together, it's it's just a job at the end of the day. And it's a creative job and we all love it and we are fans. But if he has something to write, and he's been asked to, I, I would be excited because I think that his material is very quality, but I don't know that I would necessarily be waiting for that to happen or be pushing for it to happen because it is time for other people to step in. And we've got so much other quality authors and directors that I'd like to see what they can do with it. And that's the thing is like, I, I feel like if, if anyone could get Moffat back to to serve as just a writer it, it would be davies because they've worked together in that capacity before uh moffat had some of the most popular episodes uh under his pen uh during that time period there is definitely a, a precedent here that could be uh you know it could be the case but we're trying to make progress with this show why are we going to to take a step back and retread old waters we need to branch out more. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, if it's true that, that Moffat's going to come back and write an episode, maybe two or something like that. Yeah. I'm going to be excited. I'm going to, I'm going to watch them, but I'm, I'm hoping that it is just rumor. Honestly, I think I might've mentioned before, I would love for Moffat to, to do something within the property that isn't necessarily screenwriting for a little while. Uh, whether that be webisodes, webisodes. Well, no, not even not even necessarily anything <laughs> filmed. Um, you know, be be part of the creative process for a, you know, uh, a short story compendium or something of that sort. Because a lot of a, a lot of his episode concepts came from his short story writing mm -hmm. that he would sock away and find later and say, "Oh, wouldn't that make a great script?" You know, what the hell? I'm going to write a script out of it. You know, the, the the something, whatever, the bad day for Sally Sparrow became blink and, and that sort of thing. So it's, it, that's, 
well within his wheelhouse and would still allow him to scratch that itch while still leaving uh, to to your point julie the 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 space for new voices new perspectives new representatives to to step forward and tell stories from a fresh set of eyes that could be just as incredible and just as memorable so yeah we'll have to see how uh trustworthy the the mirror is in this case because yeah remember that's where this came from put a pin in it put down the pitchforks (laughs) and wait yeah Yeah. (laughs) thankfully within that sort of statute of limitations chris chibnall has put his foot down and has said no (laughs) i will not be writing He's sort of exactly maybe where Moffat was a year ago. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, after after giving that lengthy interview uh, to the guys over at Radio Free Scarrow, and now he's talking uh, with Radio Times and a number of other sources, he seems to be a lot more open now with everything in the rearview mirror uh, and just feels more comfortable to be able to to say, you know, oh, wow, the experience was, you know, was everything that it that I thought it might be and a and hundred pounds more, you know, as far as the, the stresses and the, and the strains, but he wouldn't there, while there may be little things that he would adjust, he wouldn't change uh, much of anything within his experience other than, I don't know, maybe doing away with a global pandemic, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we would all vote. I mean, for if that, he can do that, yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Well, if I can turn back time, um, but <laughs> the, what? Town. <laughs> I can't crack out. Hey, share and enjoy. But he will certainly not be writing for the show again. I think he feels every every day of the five years that he has put into the three seasons of this show. So Julie's broken. Yeah, he broke. She's it. not going to make it back. I, uh, that's I mean, all right. we're just going to push right past it. But you just want to know what you just did. What you can't just you can't just speak share. (laughs) Yeah, but you could have not done that. But I did, and now it's there. I'll keep doing it. Uh, I'm gonna drift back towards the topic. Uh, Kira, you can probably tell me which musician said this quote, but you have your whole life to write your first album, and you've got two years to write your second album. I've heard the quote. I couldn't tell you. Well, okay. Uh, but that that's that immediately popped to mind with these back to back stories is both of these guys told the stories that they'd been thinking about since they were kids when they had their runs on the show. So give them some time to come up with some great new crackers of an idea um, before you start harassing them to come back to the show. Yeah. Or let them go create other great stuff that we've been waiting to come out of their brain that we don't even know about yet. Right. And yeah, to your point, come back in a few years or just... Have given us everything you had. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, what would it be so wrong if they said, I gave you everything, like a sports ball player who leaves <laughs> everything on the field? If they left with nothing left, I'm not upset by that because it means that they gave us everything they had. They made it as good as they could make with the time and the budget that they had. And it's, it is what they could give us. And as an artist, there is no greater thing than that to have left everything that you could do out there for the world to see and then go do other stuff and make that as good as it can be in the future too. Mm. I can't even imagine what Chimnall's going to work on next. 
sleep. Yeah, I was going to well, say, he's yes. going to take a very long nap. Yeah. Take naps. Yeah, getting back into a proper circadian <laughs> rhythm yeah. would be uh, step one. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that there's there are other people who we haven't seen or heard from that we don't even know about yet. And they will become the next generation, the next big thing. And those are the people I want to hear from. Those are the ones I want to see what they've got to give us. Well, uh, when we come back in two weeks, we're actually going to be uh, returning to an old favorite of ours, the, the Tournament of Time. Yes, if you remember, we haven't touched uh, a couple of these. We had gone through our preliminary qualifying rounds. So we've advanced a few of these brackets into the finals, but now we need to sort of drive the spike home and see uh, the really painful, painful decisions. We loved this on a cliffhanger a year ago, I think. We don't tell Julie. (laughs) 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 But I think one of the first ones that we did was what we categorized as friends of the doctor so not companions but specifically those sort of i I guess you could say earthbound or you know ones who didn't weren't regular traveling companions that whose lives were yeah kind of kind of so yeah um we'll we'll do a little over the course of the next week or so we'll put the uh, we'll put the bracket out there as it currently stands after the advancement of one round and we'll sort of encourage everyone to sort of chime in on where they would take it down through the finals to who will be the actual victor of the of the ultimate ultimate friend of the doctor and no it's not the tardis you're not allowed to say the tardis that doesn't work because the tardis is technically a companion a forever companion yeah the ghost monument you might say Well, this has been episode 489 of Gallifrey Public Radio. Until next time, this is Jay saying, that's Miss Wormwood. I thought you said she was an ugly bug-eyed squid thing. <laughs> and this is Kira saying, I'm looking forward to our next episode for the Tournament of Time. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that to me. I just did. Again. <clears throat> this is Julie saying, do I look like the kind of girl who only has one lipstick? And this is Haley saying, my files have a higher security rating than I ever did. We'll see you next time. I don't see. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Gallifrey Public Radio. Want to keep the conversation going? You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Or just send us a good old-fashioned email to feedback at gallifreypublicradio.com. You can also give us a phone call at 754-225-5477. That's 754-CALL-GPR, and you may hear your voice on a future episode of the show. Everything's got to end sometime, otherwise nothing would ever get started. Join us next week for a brand new episode. Jacob Hansen. Gallifrey Public Radio is copyright 2023. We'll see you next time.